This morning, I invite you to open your Bible to the fourth chapter of Romans, and that's where we slept off last week, and we're going to pick up the same theme from Romans chapter four, and we're going to begin today with verse number six. Do you have your copy of God's word? I hope that you do. Would you find it, turn it on, and locate the fourth chapter of Romans, and we're in verse number six. We're walking through, if you're a guest today, we're walking through the book of Romans together, And so this is a letter written at the hand under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of the Apostle Paul. He's writing from Corinth to a church he's never been to, but is planning to go to. And he's writing to them to encourage them in their faith, to deal with some of the struggles and difficulties they may be facing, and to share with them the gospel that he preaches. And so we're in the fourth chapter, and we're talking about that we're justified by faith. It's through grace, by grace through faith, and that's not of our own selves, not our own works, and it was God's work. It's faith alone. The title of this sermon is Sola Fide. This is the second installment of this message, and it's David, an illustration of justification by faith. So with me, look will you now to the sixth verse, and it says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. Amen. Heavenly Father, I pray that today that you speak to our heart from your word, that, Father, you encourage us in our faith. Father, I pray that you would correct us of wrong thinking. I pray that you would, uh, that you would change us to live by faith, walk by faith, and obey you in our lives. And Father, I pray that you would liberate us in the truth of your wonderful love. Now, Father, have your way in our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. There's an Old Testament principle of legal law that says that a legal matter must be established by two or more witnesses. One witness is not enough. The Old Testament doesn't like that he said, she said kind of feel, where there's no witness. So to convict an accused of a crime or an offense, there needs to be two or more witnesses. Paul is exercising that. He uses in chapter number four a witness to the truth that we are justified by faith and not by our works, Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. But he's not finished. He brings in a second witness, and that witness is David. The spiritual patriarch is Abraham, and Israel's greatest king is David. And David embodied the devotional spirit and the longing of the nation of Israel. No king, no leader, no commander, no one compared in leadership to David. In all of Israel, he would be kind of like, I, I don't know how to, what to compare it to. You could say George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, all rolled together 
would not stand as tall and as, as David in the nation of Israel. He was a great in every way. He, he, was, he, he brought together the nation in unity. He was a shepherd and he shepherded over God's people. He was a gifted musician. He was a soldier. He was a king. He acted like a priest. He was a prophet. He was Israel's poet and Israel's greatest king. He was a man after God's own heart. So when we look at this and it says, just as David, verse number six, I think we need to go back and look at, say, who was David and uh, why is he uh, using him as an example? And so let's look at David and his life. And then we'll look at the psalm. He quotes part of one of David's psalms, Psalm 32. And we're going to look at that together today, okay? So first of all, let's look at who is David. First of all, he was called by God and anointed as king in Israel. Now, you remember the story. Saul is the first king in Israel. But Saul, because of his disobedience, because of his troubled nature and soul, and because that he acts without obedience in a spontaneous way, thinking his way was better than God's way, and disobeys the words of the prophet Samuel, God says, I'm going to remove Saul as the king of Israel. And he tells Samuel, quit grieving now over Saul. I'm going to remove him. And you're going to anoint someone to be king from Bethlehem. And you will know him because he'll be a part of Jesse's household in Bethlehem. And so he sends Samuel, the prophet, to Jesse's house. All of Bethlehem was fearful when the Sam Samuel, the prophet, shows up. He was a mighty man himself. And uh, he comes, and you'll find the story found in 1 Samuel chapter number 16. And so they parade the different sons of Jesse before Samuel the prophet. And Samuel, when he sees Eliab, he said, surely this is the man. Look at him. What a specimen of a man this is. But God said, no, that's not it, Samuel. He's not the one. And then he brings in Abinadab, Abinadab, and Abinadab is not the one. And then he brings in Shammah, and Shammah's not the one. He brings in seven sons. And he's, Samuel looks at Jesse and he said, is this all you got? He said, no, well, there's one little ruddy one out there, just a shepherd boy. My youngest, he's out watching over the sheep. And he said, well, we'll wait to eat until he gets here. And they sent for David on the hills of Bethlehem, watching over the sheep. And he was tending them. And he came in, and notice with me in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse number 12, so Jesse sent for him. He had beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. And then the Lord said, anoint him. He's the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. And Samuel set out and went to Ramah. David is anointed by Samuel the prophet as king. Now it will be many years 
before David actually becomes king. But God's call is on his life and God's anointing on his life. Second thing we know about David, he was a faithful shepherd. He was a shepherd in his father's house and he was a shepherd over the nation of Israel. And David is the very one that writes Psalm 23 that we love so much and has ministered to so many of us through the years. Now listen what David says about the Lord. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. And even though I go through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they do comfort me. How did David, David know what a good shepherd does? Because David himself had done the very same thing for the sheep he was responsible for. David, indeed, was a good shepherd. Thirdly, I have to move quickly through all of this. He was a gifted musician. Isn't that interesting? He could play instruments and was a gifted musician. Interesting story. Whenever Saul is disturbed and needs somebody to help him in his court and with the disturbed nature, he helped Saul. In chapter 16, in verse number 18, David comes to help Saul by playing his instrument. It says, one of the young men answered, I've seen the son of Jesse in Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He's also a valiant man, a warrior, eloquent, handsome, and the Lord is with me. Verse 22, Saul sent word to Jesse, let David remain in my service, for he's found favor with me. And whenever the spirit from God came on Saul, David would pick up his lyre and play, and Saul would then be relieved and feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. You see, Saul had all kinds of issues going on inside of him. And David, David was helpful to him. David was always loyal to Saul. David respected Saul. David refused to raise his hand against God's anointed. David saw the insecurity of Saul. More than once, Saul threw his javelin at David in order to try to kill him. David saw plotted against David. He was filled with insecurity and demonic oppression. If you want to see somebody in the Old Testament that's bipolar, that's, that's Saul, man. He's crazy. At one time, he's prophesying with the prophets. The next time, he's, he's insecure and trying to kill David. You ever known somebody like that can turn on a dime? Well, that's the way Saul was. There was an evil spirit that was in him. David would play, and it would minister to the deep depths of his life. He was from Bethlehem, wasn't he? He was, uh, I think that's interesting, that's where the Messiah would come from. He was a valiant warrior, wasn't he? Notice in the 17th chapter of 1 Samuel, interesting story, one we all learned in Sunday school, maybe, all right. It's about David and who? Goliath. That's exactly right. And so Goliath is this huge, hulking, 
beast of a man stood a giant, literally a giant, 11 foot tall, a giant of a man, strong as a bull ox. He was unbelievable. And he would come out and taunt the armies of Israel when the Philistines were in battle array and the Israelites and the Philistines and the valley of Elah was between them. This giant of a man would come out and taunt the armies of Israel to fight. He would taunt Saul. Come on, send your most valiant soldier. Fight with me. Saul was head and shoulders, taller than everybody else in the nation. He was the, Israel's strongest warrior. But King Saul refused to go out and fight him, and the men quaked in fear. But not David. David was filled with the Spirit of God, and he was a valiant, courageous warrior. In 1 Samuel chapter number 17, you remember the story. He goes to the camp where his brothers are there in war, and he's checking on them, and he hears the taunts of the, of the, of the uh, giant warrior, Goliath. And in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 34, David answered Saul, he said, your servant has been tending his father's sheep. And whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it. I struck it down, rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I'd grab it by its fur and strike it down and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. For he's defied the armies of the living God. Wow. That's some Holy Spirit power right there. Amen. He said in verse number 37, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, may the Lord be with you, son. Then Saul had his own military clothes put on David put a bronze helmet on his head and put on his armor and David strapped his sword on over the military clothes and he tried to walk, but he wasn't used to them. He said, I can't walk in these. I'm not used to them. He took them off. Instead, he took a staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the wadi and he put them in his pouch in his shepherd's bag. And then with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Who's going to win this battle? You guys already know, don't you? So when the Philistine sees him, he taunts him. He says, come, the Philistine called to, Philistine called to David. I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the wild beast. David said, you come against me with a sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. and You have defied him. Today, the Lord will hand you over to me. And today, I will strike you down, remove your head, and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky, the wild creatures of the earth. And then all of the world will know that Israel has a God. Man, I wish he's a member of my church. <laughs> this whole assembly will know that it's not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's, and he'll hand you over to us. Taunt after taunt, 
the giant approaches David, trying to instill fear into his life. Let me say this about the enemy. The enemy wants you to be fearful and not filled with faith. Fear comes from the taunts of the enemy, and fear comes from naysayers. It might be family members, brothers, sisters, parents, political leaders. But we need to understand that we're not afraid because God is our Father. And if God be for us, who can be against us? And notice what happens. David takes his sling and fires a rocket. And that bullet of a rock hits Goliath in the head. And he falls down. And David severs his head from his body. Takes Goliath's weapons. Puts them in his own tent. And then he's summoned before Saul and Abner who's the general of the armies. And he has in his shepherd boy's hand the head of the giant. Whew. And the king said, now whose son are you? And he said, Jesse's son from Bethlehem. Oh, he became a warrior in battle along with Abner and Jonathan, and they routed the Philistines. And the women swooned at David's good looks and valiant ways. And the women all sang a little song. Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Well, if you're insecure, that doesn't sit so well with King Saul. He was not only that, he was a victorious king. When David becomes anointed, this victorious king, notice with me in 2 Samuel chapter number 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5. After the death of Saul and when the nation is reunited under David... All of the tribes of Israel came to David in chapter 5, chapter 1, at Hebron. Here we are, your own flesh and blood, even while Saul was king over us. You were the one that led us out in the battle and brought us back. The Lord also said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will be ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. King David made a covenant with them at Hebron in the Lord's presence, and they anointed David king over Israel. And David was 30 years old when he began his reign, and he reigned for 40 years. In Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years over Israel and over Judah. Wow. David subdues all of his enemies. He expands his kingdoms. He unites Israel. And great prosperity is known under David's reign. He establishes a city. He invades the city of the Jebusites, who said, 
Nobody can defeat us because we're a walled and fortified city. And David sneaks his way through the water shaft. They said even the deaf and dumb could defend this city. We're so protected. But David defeated the city of the Jebusites. And it becomes known as the city of David, which becomes known as Jerusalem. Amen. This is the mighty warrior David. But not only that, he is the king of covenant promise. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse number 16, God gives a covenant promise. He sends the word to his prophet Nathan. And Nathan, at, uh, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. In chapter number 7, in verse number 4, it says, That night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go to my servant David. And says, this is what the Lord says. He says, are you to build a house for me? He said, David, I'm going to use you. I'm going to anoint you. David, I'm going to set up a relationship with you and your house and your family. And there will always be someone sit on your throne. It's a covenant promise, a Davidic promise, promise, a messianic promise. In chapter 7, verse number 16 your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. And Nathan reported all of these words, an entire vision to David. And David responds, who am I, Lord? And what is my house that you've brought me this far? But God gives a promise to David. He said, someone will always sit on your throne. It is a messianic promise because the Messiah comes through the lineage of David and Abraham. He was a man who also committed, and we can't ignore this because this sets up Psalm 32. Despite all of these wonderful and glorious things about David, listen to me. He committed a wicked, sinful heinous crime. In 2 Samuel chapter number 11, we have it recorded in its detail for our instruction. You know the story. David was the king of Israel. All the men went out to war. He stayed at home. He's walking on his palace rooftop. And he sees a woman across the way bathing at her house. He not only sees her, he looks at her, longs for her, inquires about her, found out that she is married to one of his soldiers, Uriah, Hittite, and he summons her to his own palace. He's inflamed with lust. He desires her, wants her, lays with her, impregnates her. She comes back and tells him later, I'm going to have a baby. And then he begins scrambling in the cover-up of this affair. 
He brings Uriah back from the home lines, hoping to send him home so that Uriah might, it might look like Uriah is the father. But Uriah refuses to go home while his brothers are in the field at war. Uriah has more integrity than the king at the moment. Finally, he sends Uriah to the front lines and tells the commander to withdraw and leave him in a vulnerable place on the front line. And effectively, he murders him as part of the cover-up. He covets, he lusts, he commits adultery, he commits murder, he lies. He breaks the law in the most heinous and wicked crime. In verse number 26, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah had died, she mourned for him. Chapter 11, verse 26. In verse 27, when the time of mourning ended, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife, bore him a son. However, the Lord considered what David to be done, done what David had done as evil. Let me tell you about sin. Sin will take you further than you meant to stray. It'll keep you longer than you meant to stay. And it'll cost you more than you meant to pay. It's destructive. It's devastating. God would not leave his man in the cover-up. And he reveals it to Nathan the prophet what had happened. And Nathan confronted David. And this is part of his restoration when God confronts us of our sin. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse number 7, Nathan replied to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I rescued you from Saul. I gave you your master's house to you your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if that was not enough, I would have given you even more. Why then have you despised the Lord's command by doing what I consider evil? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife as your own wife. You murdered him with the Ammonite's sword. Wow. Confrontation. He had sinned against God. Yet God was going to restore him. God is working toward his restoration. In verse number 12, it says, You acted in secret, but I will do this before all Israel in broad daylight. David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord, verse 13. And Nathan replied, And the Lord has taken away your sin, and you will not die. There's a consequence to his sin. Because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you will die. And Nathan went home. There's a high price to sin. Today in the rest of the sermon, this is the context of Psalm 32. And this is quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 4. 
So look with us again. You, some of you wondered, are we ever going to get back to Romans? Folks, if we don't give you the background, we don't understand the argument. So look with me to the fourth chapter. Just as David was speaking of the blessings of the person whom God's credit righteousness apart from works. How was David justified? Number one, it's apart from works. David was not made right with God because he earned it or worked for it, deserved it. He had nothing to bring to God. He had done a wicked, heinous, terrible thing, and, and he had no ability to save himself or earn his right standing with God. Now, a sister's psalm to the 32nd is the 51st. Would you look with me there to the 51st psalm? This is written by David in the context of this confrontation about sin. This confrontation about sin and the grief that he felt about it later. He cries out in prayer in Psalm 51.1, Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love. I have nothing but your kessed, kessed, your your love, your loving kindness, your, your faithful love, and your abundant compassion. And he prays, blot out my rebellion. God, completely wash me away from my guilt. Cleanse me from my sin. God, I'm messed up. I'm, I'm screwed up. I, I, I've done wrong. He prays. He acknowledges his sin. Verse 3, I'm conscious of my rebellion. My sin is ever before you. Against you and you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. He says, God, wash me. Verse 7, purify me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Verse number 9, Turn your face away from my sin. Blot out my guilt. Verse 10, create a clean heart in me. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Verse 14, save me from the guilt of my sin. The guilt of the bloodshed. Oh God of my salvation. I need saving. Restore me, God, verse 12. Restore the joy of your salvation to me. I can't restore myself. Restore me. My friends, he calls on God. And he said, God, you don't want a sacrifice. I don't have anything. Verse 16, you do not want sacrifice. I'd give it. You're not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God's a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humble heart, God. It, there's no works. David has no works. You see it? All he has is the mercy of God. And some of you think that you can work your way to heaven. Some of you think, well, I just got to get this right in my life and then God will accept me. I just think, I, no, 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 you can't do anything, friends. Listen, the only thing we got is him. All of your righteousness is filthy rags. 
Your only hope is Jesus Christ. Can somebody say amen? amen? It's apart from work. Secondly, it's God's work. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Who does the work? God does the work. Only God can do the work. Verse number nine, turn your face away from me. Blot out my guilt. That's God's work. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. That's God's work. Only God can save him. Lawlessness. Now back to Romans 4. This is Paul's argument. Verse number 7 is a quote of Psalm 32. A sister Psalm to 51. And he says, first of all, blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven. Lawless acts, this, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, the word for lawless acts is the word pasha. Here, in the Greek text that's being quoted by Paul, it's lawlessness. It means a rebellion against God's word. It means I'm thumbing my nose at God and saying, I don't care what you say, I'm going to do what I want to do. Has anybody noticed that that's the spirit of this age? I want to do what I want. And what I think is most important over anybody else. I want what I want. I am who I say I am. And it's the spirit of rebellion. Pasha is the Hebrew word. I had a dog one time. I should have named her Pasha. She was incorrigible. And he says, our rebellion, our lawlessness is forgiven. Notice what Paul says. He says, our lawless acts are forgiven. The word for forgiven means lifted up and sent away. God lifted up your sin. Stay with me. And he sent them away. What is that a picture of? It's a picture of in the Old Testament the scapegoat, remember, on the Day of Atonement, they would pray and confess all of the sins over one of the goats. And the one, the scapegoat, that was chosen to bear away the sins, would leave the camp by the hand of a man and go far, far away in the wilderness and be left to die in the wilderness. Bearing away the sins. That's what God does with your sins. Can I tell you a good news here? God takes your sins and he bears them away. Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Isn't that good news? Micah says that he's buried them in the depths of the sea. Years ago, many years ago, there'll be a handful of people who remember this man. Uh, there was a man in our church, his name was Jeff Light. Does anybody remember that man that was in our church? 
Raise your hand if you remember Jeff Life. All right, so let me do. Well, Jefferson Life was quite the person. And he was energetic and full of life, and he was talented and gifted. He was a teacher at Signal Hill in Belleville. And he was a college cheerleader. He was a tailor. He was a school teacher, a devoted deacon, a Sunday school teacher. And sometimes he'd lead the music at Bethel years and years ago. And when he did, he did his cheerleading act almost while he led the music. And occasionally he'd pick a little song to sing. And he loved to do it with great purpose. I could never do it like him. I can't even imitate him. I love that man. But one of the little songs that he would sing was, Gone, 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 my sins are gone. Now my soul is free, and in my heart's a song, buried in the deepest sea. That is good enough for me. I shall live eternally. Praise God. And he would do this. My sins are G-O-N-E, gone. And we would all laugh and rejoice because our sins are gone. That's what God does with your sin. They are not only gone and removed from us, they're covered. Notice what he says in the text. And he says, whose sins are covered. The word sin there is the Hebrew word hata. In the Greek text, it's, it's, it's a similar word. It means failure, falling short of a standard, less than what God wants you to be. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How many of you all admit we've all sinners and all screwed up, messed up? Yeah. And he says, your sins are covered. Now, David tried to cover his sins. That ended in disaster. But God provides a covering. And the covering, this, let me tell you about sin that you try to cover up. Let me tell you what happens. When you, try, when I, when you hide and keep your sin private and you say, well, I'll, I, I'm just going to hide it and pretend it's not there. Let me tell you what it does. It ruins your life. Now, stay with me. It ruins your life. It damages you spiritually. It damages you physically. Your, your energy is drained away as in the fever heat of summer, David said. It damages you psychologically. You're, you're, it's always raging in the back of your mind, this sin that you've hidden. It damages you emotionally. It damages you relationally. You can't have intimate relationships with others because you, you're keeping a secret all the time. And what can cover this? It's odious. It's, it's a stench. There's only one covering. And when the high priest would take the blood of the other lamb on the day of atonement, and splatter it and sprinkle it on the altar and bring it in to the holy place and smear it 
on the Ark of the Covenant lid, the mercy seat. And God looks and he no longer sees sin, but he sees the blood that paid for the sin. And the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. But God sent his son, Jesus, and he died on the cross, and he paid for all of your sin, and it's covered by the blood of Christ. Can somebody say hallelujah? Hallelujah. You know what? Listen to me. Y'all know this song. If you don't, you're going to learn it today, part of it. I'm going to... This song has some questions to it, and then you're going to supply the answer. All right, you ready? Your line is nothing but the blood of Jesus. I want you to say it together when I point at you, all right? What can take away my sin? What can make me whole again? For my pardon, this I see. For my cleansing, this my plea. Nothing can for sin atone. Not of good that I have done. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. It's our only hope. It's the blood of Jesus. Thirdly, your iniquities are forgiven. The twisted sin and iniquities he does not impute to you. And notice in verse number eight, blessed is the person who the Lord will never charge, never credit, never impute with sin. The impute is an accounting word. And so he says he does not account into our account our sin. That's good news. Amen. Now, just imagine the ledger of your life. Let's say you have a ledger book, the ledger of your life. And on one side of the ledger are your assets. Okay. And the other side of your ledger of the ledger are all of your liabilities, all of your debts. And let's say that this ledger of assets is nothing. Nothing good. And over here are all the things that you've earned or deserved. In that ledger, it's bad investments, credit card debt to the max, loans, defaults, mortgages, second mortgages, school loans, a mountain of debt you could never, ever pay. Some of you are saying, you just described my life. But nothing over here. But he took all those things that were outstanding against us and he nailed them to the cross and they're paid for and he has removed them out of our account. Can somebody say praise God? But that's not all. Now look at my assets. I got nothing on my own. 
But God imputes the righteousness of Christ into my account. And that righteousness is wealth that can never run out. (laughs) Tell your neighbor, you're the richest person in the world. You are. Because you're rich in Jesus Christ. Amen. My time is gone. Now listen, my friends. How am I made righteous? Not by your self-efforts. Nope, you can't save yourself. And that's Paul's whole argument. Chapter 3, verse 20. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. If you could be saved by the law, then Christ died needlessly, Paul says in Galatians 2, verse 21. You are saved by grace through faith. The Bible says, therefore, law was a tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. And you are saved by the redemptive work of Jesus. In Titus chapter 3, verse 4, we're going to read this together. Read it with me out loud. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. He poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. My question to you today, are you a Christian? Have you ceased to look to yourself? Are you looking to and relying on Jesus Christ alone as your Savior and what he's done on your behalf? Do you realize that you could do nothing of yourself to earn salvation? Are you, or are you still trying to earn his favor? The burden of sin is a heavy burden and you cannot roll it away. But you must come to him as you are and he will save you. He will save you. Just as I am without one plea but that thy blood was shed for me and that thou bidst me come to thee O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am in waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot to thee, whose blood can cleanse each spot. O Lamb of God, I come. He is our only hope. Father in heaven, have your way in our hearts and our lives. As we take this Lord's Supper today, may we do so 
with a complete reminder that it's only the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from our sin and makes us right. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.